Our scripture reading this morning is Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the foreside of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. This is God's word. Please be seated. Inside of the bulletin is uh, a sheet that you can use to, uh, to follow along as we go through our study of Exodus chapter 3 this morning. Uh, we're going to look at the first six verses, and uh, there's a, a place for you if something that uh, you want to jot down maybe to, to remember or to, to study uh, some later this week or in the future. Uh, we provide that for you in that outline. Uh, reminder, too, at the bottom, uh, some of our small groups are meeting uh, tonight, some are not, and some are not going to be the following week because of the spring break and everyone that's traveling and out of town right now. Uh, but if you are meeting tonight and next week, there are going to be some questions that are provided for you so that uh, the discussion uh, can be uh, not only generated but directed in this area of holiness that we're looking at in Exodus chapter 3 this morning. And now, uh, now that we have our Bibles open to Exodus 3 and those outlines out, Let's do what we always do as we approach the Word of God, and that's to ask Him to bless us and to open our eyes and to open our ears in such a way that we turn toward Him and we're changed and transformed and become different leaving this place than when we came into it. Oh, Father, it's, it, it is wonderful to be in Your presence this morning with all these brothers and sisters and to hear every one of their voices to say the word holy that describes who you are at the very core of your being. We are grateful for that holiness and also for that love that provides a way for us to enter into that holiness without being destroyed. And we are grateful, Father, for this moment in history where you revealed yourself to Moses and revealed yourself to him in such a way that it changed him and changed history. And we pray this for our own personal histories this morning, Father, that as we approach you through song and the remembrance of sacrifice and even in the very act of praying to you, that we will strive and yearn and hunger and desire to be a people that holy in all that we do, just as you are holy. And this we ask, Father, give us eyes that hear and 
uh, eyes to see and ears to hear in such a way that that happens. And it's all that we pray with all of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. What do you expect when you build a building for about a quarter of a billion dollars? What you expect, and the exact amount was $274 million, what you expect is a glorious building. And by all accounts, I've never seen it, but by all accounts, that's what the Walt Disney Concert Hall is. This beautiful, glorious building. Everyone that sees it is just stunned by it. It's, it's beautiful, it's majestic, and it's made out of stainless steel. And everybody that comes into its presence just raves about how beautiful it is and how gorgeous it is, except for the people that live right across the parking lot from it. Because in the middle of the day, when the sun is at its highest, it hits that stainless steel building and bounces into the condominiums across the parking lot. And in the middle of the day, if you're out there on your balcony, you're out there on the back porch, you have to go inside because you can't see anything. It's that bright. And you have to go inside because you can no longer sit on the metal, uh, the metal patio furniture because it's gotten too hot. And even when you get inside of your, your condominium, your, your apartment, you have to close the drapes and you have to turn on the air conditioner because on average, that building in the middle of the day will heat that con- those condominiums by 15 degrees. One lady in particular who lives in the condo said that you can close the drapes and you can walk to the other side of the room, but you can still feel its warmth. And for a period of time every day, and the sun hits that building, and it's bright, and it radiates everywhere, and it it makes its impact on that building, people have to live with a bit of discomfort until that sun shifts and the the rays are, are pointed in a different direction. But it, you know, and it's, it's, it's a problem that's probably never going to be solved because it, it's a gigantic monstrosity of a building. It costs nearly three, uh, a quarter of a billion dollars to build. And some of the things that they've tried to do already have turned out to be pretty ugly. They put blankets over this thing. And it, you know, it didn't even, it didn't even hit the, 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 the temperature gauge all that significantly. So these people are going to have to live with the uncomfort of this, the glory of this building. And for me, you know, the story in this event out on the West Coast in California seems to be quite the metaphor for what it is we're going to be looking at this morning, where we find ourselves a little bit uncomfortable being in the the holy presence of God. And one of the big questions that you find from Genesis all the way over to the maps in the Bible is this, how are we to live in the presence of a holy God and not be destroyed? Now, last week we began the study of the book of Exodus. We looked at chapters 1 and 2. What we discovered is that there is a sense to God's presence that can be called hiddenness. That for four centuries there was a bit of hiddenness. There was no discernible presence of God that could be detected. There was no discernible word of God that could be heard by the people And then you get to Exodus chapter 3, and all of a sudden God is wanting to reveal himself, which brings up one of the major issues in the book of Exodus, and that is that God wants to be known. Yes, God is hidden. That doesn't mean absence, because God wants to be known by his people. And so at the end of chapter 2, after 400 years of, of silence and of that hiddenness, God sees his people, he hears their cries, he, he, uh, he makes the decision 
to do something because he has remembered that he had made an oath to Abraham. All of that language, all of those verbs are a sign that God is getting ready to do something. And it begins in chapter 3 with a revelation. And so when we get to chapter 3, we see that Moses, the liberator, has taken matters into his own hands. At the age of 40, he decides that he wants to go and, and have a look at his people. He knows about their oppression. They are his people. They're in his heart. He wants to see them with his own eyes. And so he goes out. He sees that there's this Hebrew that is abusing, uh, or he sees this Egyptian that is abusing a Hebrew. And he kills the Egyptian, buries him in the sand, thinks that the matter is under wraps and nobody is going to know anything about it. The next day he goes out to see his people again and he sees two Hebrews this time and they are fussing with one another. And he goes, why in the world are you fussing with each other? You're brothers. And one of the Hebrews says to him, hey, are you going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian? And Moses becomes afraid. And in, in uh, uh, Genesis chapter 46, you'll remember that uh, as Joseph is counseling his brothers as they're going into Egypt, he reminds them to say, be careful how you describe to Pharaoh what your, your, your profession is. He says, because shepherds are loathsome to the Egyptians. Well, in trying to get away from Egypt, Moses goes to the land of Midian and he becomes one of those, those very loathsome shepherds. And so when he arrives in Midian, he sits down next to a well there's a priest of Midian by the name of Jethro, and his other name is Rule. He has seven daughters who come to water, to this well, to water their flocks. There are some other shepherds because it's probably, it's, it's a well, and they're out in the middle of nowhere, and there are lots of sheep in these flocks that need to be watered. So they begin to jostle for position next to that well, and all of a sudden the daughters of Jethro begin to be pushed and nudged and muscled out of that well area, and Moses sees it, and he decides that he's going to to uh to save them and not only that he draws the water after he drives the other shepherds off and he waters the other flocks and he he, he takes care of that for the girls well the girls head home a little bit sooner than was expected this catches their father's attention and he wants to know why in the world are you back so early and they say an egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds and what is more he even drew the water for us and watered the flock Make a note of that word deliverance. There's still deliverance in Moses, although it's kind of pushed down. Jethro, the father, is incredulous in his honor and shame culture that they have not at that very minute invited Moses to, to, to sample their hospitality for the kindnesses that he has shown to their daughter. And as it turns out, as you can imagine, that when you have seven daughters, it's kind of nice to have some male companionship in the house, especially one who seems to be pretty handy and one who happens to be single. Well, Moses did not have any other better options to, to deal with, and so he dwells with Jethro, and he falls in love with one of the daughters, a woman by the name of Zipporah, and they have a son by the name of Gershon, which means sojourner, and 40 years later, Moses is, is moving the flocks to the west side of the land. He sees what looks like a blazing fire in a bush. And what is, is odd and captures Moses' imagination is that the bush is not consumed. It's a self-sustaining fire in the bush. But to Moses, it's a marvelous sight. And so he begins to walk over. He wants to investigate it. 
And as Moses gets near to the fire on the side of that mountain, God calls from the midst of the bush and says his name. Moses. Moses. Well, Moses doesn't know what to say, so he says the, the logical thing. He says, here I am. And then God from the bush says, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And then in verse 6, Moses hid his face, for he was what? He was what, church? He was afraid to look at God. And so here's Moses, intrigued by the sight of a fire in a bush, goes out of his way to investigate, and then all of a sudden he is afraid. And he's hiding his face. Hey, what has happened? Well, all of a sudden Moses realizes that he's having an encounter with the God who is holy. And in these six verses that we find at the beginning of, of Exodus 3, we, we see there are three things that kind of stand out. One is the holiness of God is really overwhelming. We're going to talk mostly about that this morning. But then the holiness of God also overpowers us. And then finally, the holiness overrides our past. So let's think for a moment about what it means to be afraid. Well, when we come into God's presence, His holiness is going to overwhelm us. And maybe the first thing we should do is define what does it mean for God to be holy? Well, to define it quickly, the Hebrew word kadosh comes from, uh, which is a three-letter word, comes from a two-letter word, which means to cut or to separate. To say that God is holy means that He is separate, that He has, has cut or removed Himself from everything else. One of the great writers of the last century about God and all of the attributes of God was a fellow by the name of A.W. Tozer, uh, preached in, in a, a, a church for a long time in Chicago. And in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, he writes, holy is the way that God is. To be holy, he does not conform to a standard. He is that standard. He is absolutely holy with an infinite, incomprehensible fullness of purity that is incapable of being other than it is. In other words, 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, in him there is no sin. In God, and God alone, there is a perfect, uninfected health. I mean, one of the ways that you can think about it is uh, if God was walking down the corridor of a hospital, you know, every time I go into a hospital, I'm a little bit worried that something's going to jump on me and I'm going to get sick. They say sometimes the, the, you know, the, the place, if you want to get sick, go to the hospital. That's where all the germs are. God, walking down the corridor of a hospital, not only would there be not a single virus or a single bacteria that would be able to penetrate him, but as he walks down the corridor, all of the viruses and all of the bacteria are, are fleeing from him. He has a pure, perfect, uninfected health or think about the sun when you think about the sun's rays the sun's rays are the combination of all of the colors of the spectrum that have come together in the sun shining and and when it's blended into a light it blinds our eyes we can't look at it 
In, in the same way, think about the way that God manifests himself. In his self-manifestation of all of his attributes, all that he is, when they come together and they blend into his holiness, no imperfection can survive. In God, there is no crookedness. In, in God, there is not distortion. He is farther than the farthest reaches of our imagination. Isaiah says, to whom then will you liken God? Think about it. Think about it. Meditate. Think about it. Get creative. Think about it. Who are you going to liken to God? Or what likeness will you compare with Him? I mentioned this book that I've been reading, Theology of Exodus by Donald Gowan. In it, he talks about how the, the holiness of God can be understood in, in four different ways. And he's simplifying things, obviously. But he says God's holy, holy presence is, is dominating and it's terrifying because, number one, nature is affected. Here you have a bush that burns, but it's not consumed. Over in Exodus chapter 19, when the people have finally have left Egypt... And they've crossed the Red Sea and they have traveled to Mount Sinai and they're going to be there 9 to 12 months being formed into a nation and, and they're going to see all of the stuff that's happening with Moses and the, and the top of the mountain and the Ten Commandments are going to be uh, delivered to them. There's fire and there's smoke and there's thunder and there's lightning and the mountain shakes because of the holy presence of God. When Israel tries to describe the holiness of God. There, there are words in nature that are violent that they use to get our attention. It's fire and it's earthquake and it's storm. When God steps upon the planet, the planet moves. And then on top of that, danger is involved. There's danger. The precaution, don't come near Back at Mount Sinai, down the road, Exodus 19. Tell the people, don't touch the mountain. Don't touch the mountain. And it's frightening to come into the presence of holy God. Moses hides his face because he's afraid to look at God. When the people get to Mount Sinai, some chapters down the road, what is it they say? We don't want to go up on that mountain. We don't want to go up there. Let Moses go up there. He can do that for us. In the Hebrew, the words terror and, and fear or fright are used. You'll remember back over in Genesis chapter 15 when God is making that covenant with Abraham and they cut the animals and he passes through it. Remember that story? In verse 12, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram and behold, terror and a great darkness fell upon him. When the presence of God arrived and Abraham knew that he was with the holy God, he shuddered. Jacob at Peniel, when he awoke from his sleep after wrestling with God, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. He was afraid. And he said, how awesome is this place. There is none, this is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. But fourth, it's good rather than a bad experience. 
And so in the very next verse, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. There's, there's this, this tension that happens inside of fallen human beings like us when we go to a place like the Grand Canyon. You go to the Grand Canyon and you stand on its edge and you just see it. And, and nobody says, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. Get back in the car and hit the McDonald's. You stand there and you feel small. And in your smallness, you feel terrified. To come into the presence of a holy God is to be both fascinated and frightened. It is to be threatened but at the same time, attracted. Think about a young man coming into the presence of a young woman that he finds beautiful. Man, all those years ago at Abilene Christian University, I saw Ellen walking across the campus. Eyes on her. Eyes on her. I thought she was gorgeous. thought she was beautiful. Next day in the bean sitting there with my friends, drinking our chocolate milk and cracking jokes and eating tater tots. I look up and Ellen's across the table and she's holding her tray and she says, can I sit here with you? And I was terrified. (laughs) I didn't know what to say. Here's a guy that had played football and had wrestled all of his life and in an instant... Her beauty transformed me into Porky Pig, and all I could do was by all means, sit down. But I really wanted to run away. That's what this kind of beauty does to a human being. This idea that God is cuddly is dangerous for us. Because it means that we don't really recognize God for who He is. Those disciples out there in Mark chapter 4, there's that storm, and they're scared to death of the storm, right? This storm, Sea of Galilee, like glass, and the next thing you know, the waves are coming up over the side of the boat. They're terrified. Jesus is in the back of the boat sleeping. And they wake Him up and say, don't you care that we're going to perish? And Jesus gets up very calmly. There's no fear in Him. He's the master of the sea. He had created it. And they're huddling together and they're soaked. And he calmly gets up and he says, Peace, be still. And the storm, gone. Goes from 10-foot waves, 7-foot waves to glass. And they're asking each other, Who in the world can control the elements like the storm? And then they looked at him and Mark says they were afraid. When was the last time you got an eyeful of God and trembled? But God's holiness also overruns us. God tells Moses to take off his shoes because this is holy ground. What in the world does that mean? Well, uh, there's an article that was written about 100 years ago by a fellow by the name of Jacob Nock, and he wrote it on the significance of shoes in the ancient world, primarily the Hebrew world, He says, number one, shoes are about power. Shoes, the person that wears shoes is the one that's in control. 
Shoes represent a successful warrior. In fact, there was a proverb that says, as long as the foot is shod, tread the thorn. It means nothing is going to hurt you. There's um, a proverb, or actually before we get to the proverb, you'll also remember down the road with, in, in Joshua, and just, just the next great hero after Moses, they go into the promised land. What is one of the, the ways that you showed yourself successful in war? You put your shod foot on top of the neck of the person you defeated. There was also a proverb that, that we, we sort of say it the opposite in Western culture today, but they would say in the Hebrew culture, he wears the slippers. Slippers meaning a girl's shoe, which means that the wife is the one that's wearing the shoe and she's the one in charge. We would say it, she's wearing the pants. Same kind of thing, but with the shoe. The putting off the shoe meant putting off what is profane. The rabbis taught the Levites and the priests, when the Levites are carrying the emblems of the temple, they do it barefoot. When the priests would go into the Holy of Holies and the holy place, they did so barefoot. To take your shoes off, to take your sandals off, meant that you were being dismantled. It meant that you were incapacitated, and that's what God is doing in all of His holiness. He says, don't come near. It's holy ground. Take your shoes off because you're in my presence. And Moses does it. He knew he had been inadequate when he failed to liberate the Hebrews 40 years earlier. And now he knows without a shadow of a doubt that he is inadequate in the presence of a holy God. When we come into his holiness, truly come into his holiness, we see ourselves for who we are. But God's holiness overrides our past. Moses had tried to be something special for Israel. He did have a sense of the injustice of their existence, the oppression of it. But it ended up in a murder and a flight to the wilderness of Midian. And for 40 years, he had lived with that. And then we read this in Numbers 12. Now Moses was a very humble man more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. And then we realize that was the missing ingredient. Humility. And now 40 years later, humble and with a sense of inadequacy, Moses stands in the presence of the Holy God who introduces himself to Moses and says, I'm going to send you back to Egypt, back to liberate the sons of Israel, but I'm going to go with you. You know, he's, he had grown up in the palace, thought he had power, he had education, had killed a man, realized that he wasn't immune, that he wasn't Teflon. And now of all of the things that a guy like Moses could become, He's now loathsome, even in his own eyes, because he's become a shepherd. He's in the wilderness. The comforts of Egypt gone for the hard rocks and sand and scrubby bushes of Midian. Moses did not know who he was until he was standing on that holy ground. Same is true for us. And the healing of his heart began when he heard God call his name 
Moses, Moses. There's so much more to say about his life, but we'll end right there, right now. You know, the original question at the beginning of this sermon was, how in the world can people like us, who without a shadow of a doubt know who we are, especially when we come into the presence of God, His holiness, how in the world can we live in the presence of a holy God and not be destroyed? And the answer to that question is this, the holy God provides a way. Holy God provides a way. This, this last week in the New Yorker, a fellow by the name of Malcolm Gladwell, you, you've read his books, Tipping Point and others, he, he wrote an article called The Ordinary Greatness of Roger Bannister, and he makes this interesting point. He says, no one except Roger Federer knows what it's like to hit a forehand in tennis like Roger Federer. Nobody. Only Roger knows that. And, and people will say you know, about Federer, like what they say about Joe DiMaggio's hitting streak or about Will Chamberlain's 100-point game, that we will never see the like again. And Gladwell makes his point about Bannister in the breaking of the four-minute mile. He says, nobody will ever say that about Roger Bannister. No one will say that about Bannister and his breaking of the four-minute mile because thousands have done it since then. High school kids, years younger than Bannister when he did it back in the 1950s, can run faster than Roger Bannister. What Federer does and what DiMaggio did and what Wilt Chamberlain did, people will say no one will ever be able to repeat that. We will never see the like of it again. Nobody says that about Bannister because Bannister's achievement was different. What Bannister's breakthrough was was an open door for others to follow through. There have been thousands of four-minute miles since 1954 he put into reach for others to follow. When Jesus of Nazareth died on the cross, he was buried on the third day, he was resurrected. He did more than achieve the impossible. What he did in that resurrection was to make the unattainable attainable. Life after death. And a fallen people to make holy. Hebrews 2, but the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are the same family. You go eight chapters later, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Four verses later, by one sacrifice, He has made perfect forever those who are being made, what? Holy. Jesus is how you live in the presence of God without being destroyed. He is the one that takes it all away because He has taken it from you and put it on Himself so that what was on Him, His righteousness, can be put on you. He lived the life that we should have lived and didn't and died the death that we should have died but don't have to. And that is the difference between Christ and every other would-be Messiah in the history of the world. We're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front. 
And if there are some ways that we might minister to you as a church by sharing with you the gospel and how you become a child of God, a son of God, a daughter of God, or if there are some prayers that we can utter on your behalf to help you or to encourage you or to whatever it might take, we're here for you. The shepherds are going to be down here at the front that stand and with one voice that praise the holiness of God, that stand and sing. Holy Lord, most holy Lord.